Our passions are like fire and water. Good servants, but poor masters. The legend of Chile Verde tells of men and women who became slaves to their passions. They paid the price here under the blistering, burning, blazing, scorching, roasting, toasting, baking, boiling, broiling, steaming, searing, sizzling, grilling, smoldering, very hot New Mexico sun. For there is a saying in these parts, those who lust in the dust shall die in the dust. On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, Bar Tell Me Something Good, we'll be discussing the 1985 comedic western, Lust in the Dust. These lips were made for kiss, and these hips were made for bliss, and these arms were made for squeezing you tight every day, only every night, these lips were made for selecting these hips were made for connecting these legs were made for wrapping welcome back to another edition of bar tell me something good a podcast about the life and work of actor and filmmaker paul bartell i'm your host adriana gober and i'm joined once again by my bartell casting comrades liam o'donnell and doug tilly liam how are things for you today you know, pretty good. Uh, I'm excited to talk about yet another uh, Paul Bartel film. And this one has Divine in it, so that's got me pretty excited in and of itself. I can certainly relate. <laughs> Doug, what's up with you? How have you been? So good. Uh, very excited to be talking about this movie. I will say, though, you know, a couple of days ago, I popped on the old Paul Bartel IMDb profile just to get a sense of what we're looking at going forward. And I always get a little wistful going through, particularly his directorial uh, list, because there's not that much there, right? It's just a, a career sadly cut short, a career that was always spent struggling to get movies made. And uh, I mean, we still have plenty in this show to go through. And even after we're finished, the ones he directed, we can look into other things. But it's just, you know what? I want more. We, we were, we've been unfairly, the, the life has taken away the Paul Bartel that we so richly deserve. So we need to really appreciate each one we get as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, f I feel the same way. And just knowing how many projects that he uh had ideas for that he really wanted to get off the ground but you know nothing seemed to really work out for him uh after a certain point at least in terms of projects that he wanted to write and direct because we know that he continued to have a pretty great acting career mm -hmm. for years uh but well okay adrian i actually have a question for you before we jump into the movie proper sure. actually for both of you which is that I was reading an interview, I think it might be in the Paul Bartel book with Alan Arkish, and he was mentioning something that I'd never really considered before, which is that there was a view in the 1980s that perhaps Paul Bartel, after eating Raoul or maybe even leading into it, was sort of was trying to distance himself from being like a New World Pictures style director that uh, you know, he didn't do what like a Joe Dante would have done and, you know, packed his movies full of the cameos and references to Roger Corman and things like that, that he really was trying to do something very different. And the movies that we're covering now in particular seem very far away from the kind of New World Pictures uh, films that he kind of cut his teeth on. 
Is that something that you agree with, that he was trying to kind of distance himself intentionally? Um, and what kind of what would his motivations have been to do something like that? Well, I don't I mean, I, I can't say for sure that he was definitely trying to do that. But I think it, it makes a certain amount of sense because I think he always felt like he um, was a very versatile filmmaker and that he mm. he wanted to make many different kinds of movies and that the New World Pictures, um, the, the, the type of, of, of filmmaking that he was doing with New World Pictures, uh, after a certain point, was kind of limiting. Mm. And so he wanted to move beyond that. So... It's kind of interesting, like, since Eating Raul, which, again, was this kind of underground success for him, the movie that he made immediately afterwards, and this one, and certainly it looks like the next one we're going to be covering, boy, they couldn't be further away from the kind of genre pictures that you were right, doing. This yeah. one, Less Than the Dust, you can kind of maybe connect it to that sort of, of uh, uh, exploitation-esque uh, uh, genre picture. But even that, this is something completely different. You can, I mean, it, it did kind of feel like, not that he was running away from it, but he didn't have the kind of interest in making... Really, even like the whiz bang type stuff that Alan Arkish or Joe Dante or a lot of the kind of what they call graduates of that Corman school were trying to do, even a, a Jonathan Demi in the eighties. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Liam? I can see what the the point there, but it doesn't feel to me like eating Raoul is at all within that Corman school, right? So, is that where it starts the sort of need to be separate or not? Well, I mean, you still had that Joe Dante cameo and the John Landis cameo. I mean, it, it still felt like there was like references to that world, right? It didn't feel so distinct. It almost felt like, oh, you're breaking away. You want to do something with your own tone, but you still have one foot in it. But, you know, yeah. something like not for publication, you, that doesn't really feel like anything connected to, to mm -hmm. the kind of movies that you would have seen coming out of New World Pictures. But also, I don't know that he was even intending to reference new world pictures by having his buddies cameo in his films. I sure. think it was just that like they, they had developed a friendship. Um, so I think that's, that's probably more what was going on there. But I think of eating Raul is so unique in comparison to what, to other things that it's hard for me to think like, Oh, well that's still him in that world. Cause even with those folks in it, it doesn't feel like part of that world to me. Hmm. Hmm. I feel like there is kind of a consistency and sensibility, maybe not so much through Cannonball and Death Race 2000, but I mean, you can still see that kind of dark humor. I think there's still echoes of that specifically in Eating Raul, uh, maybe that you don't see in Not For Publication and, and this film that we're going to be talking about today. But again, of course, we know Paul Bartel didn't have as much of an influence on the actual content of this pe the previous movie and this one. Yeah, especially true of this one, I think. Mm hmm. Yeah. All right, let's talk about this one. All right, get your boots and saddles ready because we're moseying out west for some lust in the dust. The Old West has given us many legends of heroism, many tales of courage and valor. Now, thundering across the screen comes the mightiest, most inspiring saga of all. Return with us to an era when men were men. A time when the law of the land was the lay of the land. Anyone like to try again? Lust in the dust. <laughs> the heroes and outlaws, the sweethearts and sluts. Nice pair of jingle bobs. Thanks. They came to Chili Verde in search of treasure. <laughs> 
prepared hunter is the stranger. I am the best French kisser in Chile Verde. If I come across a Frenchman, I'll be sure and let him know. No one knew the fury of his vengeance. Over here! No one cared. Lainey Kazan is Margarita. Freeze, hombre, or I'll be wearing your asshole for a god. She liked her men like she liked her liquor. Hard and rotten. Henry Silva is Bernardo. Cesar Romero is Father Garcia. Some people have gone crazy, but not me. Oh, no, 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 no. Jeffrey Lewis is Hard Case Williams. Not gonna hurt you! Courtney Gaines is Red Dick. Most folks around here call me Red Dick. His name says it all. Ah! And divine is Rosie Valez. Dance hall girl Rosie Velez, lost in the desert, is helped to safety by gunman Abel Wood. In the town of Chile Verde, at the saloon of Margarita Ventura, word of a treasure in gold brings Abel into conflict with outlaw Hardcase Williams and his gang. This is Lust in the Dust from 1985, directed by Paul Bartell. The screenplay by Philip John Taylor from a concept by Tab Hunter. Edited by Alan Tumayan, with cinematography by Paul Lohman. Music by Peter Matz, and it's produced by Tab Hunter and Alan Glaster. All right, well, I guess we'll start, as we usually do, just sharing our general impressions of the film. Doug, I'll start with you. What are your just general thoughts on Lust in the Dust? You know, had, had you seen this movie before, uh, prepare, before you had to prepare for this episode yeah uh, i think i i think i may have mentioned on our uh last episode that i saw it when i was a kid i saw it on vhs with my family uh it, it was a <laughs> movie that was quite regularly available in video stores i remember in the late 80s early 90s so it was just something that we picked up looked funny i mean i wouldn't have had any idea who divine was and certainly i would have had no idea who paul bartell was the funny thing is i have a feeling that when i saw this for the first time I did not realize that Divine was a man in drag, that I would have just watched it thinking that it was a woman the whole time. Because, you know, the the movie presents Divine as a woman the entire time. There, why would I have any reason to think otherwise? Yeah. I, I mean, it, frankly, I was a little bit of a dull kid, so uh, that might be a contributing factor. The well, you're not alone, th- because according to Alan Glasser, many of the investors of this film did not realize that Divine was a man. It was a different time, to say the least. <laughs> uh, so I had two memories of this movie from that time period. One was Divine being in it. The other one was the fact that there was a tattoo of a map on two people's asses. So that was something, like, that was that was the defining element of this movie. Everything else, like, revisiting it was a complete mystery. Didn't remember any of the details or any of the cast outside of Divine, anything like that. So in terms of general thoughts... Um, I still, I enjoyed it. I have to say I enjoyed it, I think, a lot more than the general consensus of this movie, though I do think that's been switching a little over the past decade or maybe a little bit more than that, but also found it confusing, certainly in structure. Uh, As someone who's a huge fan of spaghetti westerns, the fact that this is at least visually meant to be a tribute to, and structurally to a certain extent as well, meant to be a tribute to that style of film was something that I had a lot of fun with. I don't know that it's necessarily part of a lot of the humor that's in here. That seems to be coming from sort of a different 
place and maybe something that I didn't have as much of a connection to. But I really connected with a lot of the performances here. People are, you know, there's really, really strong performances all the way around. They're a lot of fun. The interactions are a lot of fun. I will say that I think where it probably is the weakest is what these characters are actually saying when they're talking to each other. And maybe the, the core, you know, search for gold at the center of it it's like this motivating factor, but they don't really get to it until like the final 20 minutes of the movie. It just feels like it's meant to be a lot of wheel spinning and that wheel spinning is supposed to be hilarious, but it's like either, either there's, it's a plot, which isn't that funny, or it's the, you know, all the interactions, which are sometimes funny. And uh, I wouldn't have minded maybe a little bit more of the combination of the two. Over to you, Ian. What were your thoughts on Less in the Dust? I definitely enjoyed it. I got to agree with Doug on this one that I don't think this is the strongest script. Uh, when when the humor was supposed to be sort of uh, snappy dialogue or stuff like that, it, it doesn't really work for me. Uh, but goddamn, Divine can sell almost anything. I, 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 I won't go so far as to say anything because I don't know that I've seen everything that Divine did. And so I don't want to say, oh, everything is great. It's like, well, I don't know about that. But everything that i've seen i love and i think divine really sells me on this with with some you know i, I you know i like tab hunter i like some of the other people uh i have some mixed feelings about our boy silva in this uh but um overall i think the the performances really kind of draw me in even when i find some of the humor is a little flat i'm a little less concerned with the plot, I think, which is maybe not a good sign. Uh, but to me, it was kind of like it felt more like a screwball comedy than a serious movie, which is maybe not what it should feel like. Uh, but there's so many ridiculous moments that I found entertaining that I just kind of went with that vibe and I didn't stop to think like, hey, is this making any sense? I mean, certainly I found the big reveal of the the butt tattoos of the buttes, <laughs> uh, you know, not the most compelling mystery I've ever seen in a movie before. Uh, but was it funny? Yeah, it was kind of funny. It was fine. Like it, the whole thing feels like it vacillates between the kind of humor that makes me groan a little bit, but I don't dislike it. I'm just kind of like, all right, uh, to parts where I really was having fun with how ridiculous it was. So I think overall I enjoyed it. I think I was just hoping that the combo of Paul Bartel and Divine was going to be like next level awesome. And I don't think it quite got there. I definitely liked it a lot. And I'm kind of surprised I never saw it back in the day. And I definitely didn't really before this podcast, I had apparently had only seen death race 2000 when it comes to Paul Bartel <laughs> stuff. Uh, but uh but, you know, I thought with this one, I thought I probably saw it at some point and just forgot. And I really had never seen this before, and I'm glad I got to because I I just love Divine. And, you know, I, I love Tab Hunter to the extent that I like polyester. It was nice to see him in something else, and it was great. I thought that part of it was great. I just think that it's not – I wonder if this was – more of a Paul Bartel movie, like maybe if Paul Bartel had been able to be a bigger part of the script process, maybe then I'd feel better about the script overall. But it was still a, an entertaining film, you know, for, for the most part. 
I kind of wish it didn't have the triangle at its core. Not the not the knock Lenny Kazan, who's terrific in this, but I mean the idea of a gruff kind of straight man played by Tab Hunter, ironically, I suppose. But having T- Tab Hunter as sort of the man with no name character, and then you have this kind of boisterous, blustery divine, almost an echo of the Tuco character from the, the Bad and the Ugly. That 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 could be, you know, there's a lot of a lot of humor in that spaghetti western, and that could be even like toned up here or turned up here. And I think that would be a really fun kind of combination. But once you get into the city, it just feels like, or the town, I should say, it, things to, you know, they get, it feels a little distracted to me. But Liam, I do want you to elaborate a little on what you said about uh, Henry Silva. Or Henry Silva is one of the characters in this movie. You said you had some sort of problem with him. Maybe you should tell us what that problem was. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't love his. Uh characterization of this mexican character per se hmm. um which the, this is not the first time there was a strange characterization of a mexican person in a paul bartel film yeah That's or true. or or uh or, are we uh, talking about waparino <laughs> yeah i was gonna say yes. that is it, I don't think that I think that it was Puerto Rican, right? Yeah, was, that's right. Yeah, oh, but still, Puerto Rican. That's yeah, right. a Latinx. But even character. even in eating Raul, right. I think you could argue that there are aspects of the way that the Raul character is written that are maybe relying on certain stereotypes, but certainly not to the same extent extent that uh, the uh, Waparino character is. I mean, at sure. least I mean, at least there is a small excuse here, which is that the films that this movie is trying to emulate traded in that extensively right. including the uh yeah. eli wall character i was just mentioning a moment ago <laughs> but yeah he's browned up is what you're saying right yeah and it's obviously the browned up is not i'm not as a you know as a both a thinking human and a brown person myself <laughs> i don't love but he ain't the only one of, by the way <laughs> but i was about to say a lot of people in this movie are browned up the only one who i think is fully pulling off a stereotype is henry silva which Someone might say, well, that's because he's the only one who's trying to actually act, which might not be fair, but is kind of true in that there are a lot of characters, if you read their last names of the characters that are supposed to be Mexican that maybe aren't really pushing that as hard. His character just felt like a real caricature. Now, granted, it's a caricature of something that is a stock character in Westerns. So, like, I don't know how bummed out you can really be, but... Uh, as much as I love him, it wasn't necessarily my favorite part of the movie. And I kind of the only way I can kind of not be frustrated with it is thinking, let's think of it as a, a portrayal of a certain kind of character in Western films and not of uh, folks from Mexico, because that's that works a little better for me than than the other option, you know. Also, didn't they shoot this thing in New Mexico? You're telling me you couldn't find an actual Hispanic person to play some of these fucking roles? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's another good point, Doug. <laughs> to be fair, there, there, I think there was, Doug, uh, a Mexican or at least Latin person on set uh, playing a character whose name is Mexican. <laughs> and that would be uh, Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez. Well, there's also Woody Strode, who's playing a character named Blackman. <laughs> yep, also true. So you know, I think the stereotypes are part of the point, which doesn't mean that necessarily they've they've uh, aged particularly well. Yeah, yeah and I, which, I mean, there's definitely a theme going on with goofy names. I yes. mean, Tab Hunter's character is named Abel Wood. Yes, one hundred percent. Which, by the way, great name, great name. Yeah. Yes, that one's good. I do like that. Yeah, and by the way, on your point, Liam, I think Tab Hunter's terrific in this, and you can tell that he's really invested in the material. And I like, you know, I think he can pull off that. 
you know, the blondie man with no name type character. Maybe a little too old for the character here, but I think he does a good job. Well, so on that. Go ahead, Adriana. Sorry. No, you can go. Well, I was going to say, I don't think he's alone in his age. Everyone's kind of old on set here, Doug, except for the one. There's one character who seemed young, and everyone on set seems a little old otherwise. Yeah, yeah, there is some, maybe a couple of characters. At least Courtney Gaines still seems a little young, but yeah, yeah, no, you're still right. Also, I mean, we were talking about the triangle here, but, uh, you know, wasn't Big Ed really his love the whole time? I mean, if anything, you know, uh, Margarita <laughs> I mean, was just a distraction from his true love of Big Ed, you know? Um, I want to talk about Tab Hunter for a bit because, um, you know, the first time I had seen this movie, which was years ago, I was not very familiar with Tab Hunter outside of his role in Polyester. That's how I initially came to learn about Tab Hunter. Um, But in revisiting it this time around, uh, you know, having since, since read tab hunter's memoir and i've seen the companion documentary tab hunter confidential um so i i was coming into this with a much greater knowledge of who tab hunter was and i have to say that for me this time around the most interesting thing about this movie for me was not anything to do with like what happens in the movie it's kind of uh, like what the film means to tab hunter that i find really interesting and uh and moving even um so i don't know how how much how much do you guys know about tab hunter and um like how this movie came to be i mean i i know a little bit about how the movie came to be and i know about tab hunter likely him from polyester but also from tab hunter confidential the the documentary not the actual so you've seen that okay yeah so i knew you know and i know that it's it was kind of a huge deal that he came out in his memoir that was written, you know, fairly late in his life. Though I will say that knowing he's gay now, it sure does unlock a lot of the choices he was making around this time yeah. in his career. And yeah, so he initially got the idea for what became Lost in the Dust while he was um, like traveling the country doing dinner theater in the late 70s. Because by that point, he had left the studio. And his career had kind of started to stall out. And, you know, it wasn't until Polyester that there was this revived interest in, in, in you know, seeing Tab Hunter films. Um, but, yeah, so he got this idea in the late 70s, but it took years for it to actually come to fruition. Um, but initially he wanted he wanted to do, like, he wanted it to be sort of a combination of like a comedy and a gritty Sam Peckinpah type film, <laughs> like the wild bunch, which, you know, I think we can all agree that, um, the final product did not turn out the way he had initially envisioned. Um, I don't know. I find it interesting how it sort of is, is him like straddling these two worlds where, you know, he's playing the type of character that he often played uh, earlier in his career. Um, well, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't known for westerns primarily, although he did do a few of them. I think probably the best known uh, western film that he starred in was Gunman's Walk from 1958, um, and he did a, a few other westerns. But he was, you know, he was like this 
good-looking leading man. Uh, and so he was playing a lot of her- heroic roles, leading man roles. It, this this role seems like it has it carries a lot of meaning for him because it was a way to marry these two parts of his life. Like, you know, because he, he, he endured so much turmoil in his career for having to be closeted. And, mm-hmm. you know, being being this handsome leading man. And so this film seemed like it was a way for, to, like, do both. I don't I don't know. I like I'm trying to say, like, it like he will. He basically willed this movie into existence for himself where he could play the type of leading man role that was like his bread and butter back in his glory days. But within uh this very campy like gay milieu that he couldn't ever possibly publicly associate himself with at at the height of his career and it seems like it was something very freeing and liberating for him as you know as just as working with john waters was i mean i wonder like not that anyone should ever trade on rumors but the fact that he did follow up uh, a movie directed by an openly gay man with another movie directed by an openly gay man. I wonder if like, if he was trying to say something without saying something, or maybe it's an extension of, like you said, in these movies, he's playing that a tab hunter character, but he's surrounded by these, you know, camp factors or, um, you know, exaggerated elements that maybe really appeal to him directly, but he wasn't able to trade in them. He has, he still has to play these straight characters, even while he's surrounded by this wackiness, it would have been so nice, even though you can understand why he wouldn't do it. If he was able to participate a little more in the wilder humor, um, or, or, or kind of those camp elements in this movie in particular, but of course it wouldn't have made a lot of sense with the character that he has here too far right. out of those couple of locations. But I guess, I mean, that's a good segue, I guess, uh, for another point I wanted to bring up, which was that um, in that book, the Le- Paul Bartel, it's Paul Bartel, The Life and Films by Stephen Ar- B. Armstrong. Um, there's, in the section about Lesson of the Dust, he goes into a little bit about some of the <laughs> onset conflict between Tab Hunter and Paul Bartel. And apparently, uh, Tab Hunter felt like Bartel was being too conservative as a director. That he 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 thought he wasn't like uh, that he was toning down uh, the humor and like certain elements of the film that he th- he felt should have been more outrageous. I think he might be right. I think watching I it, think it he, does feel I think feel he is right too, and I think I think. Part of that is the fact that Bartel was so concerned about people perceiving this film as a like a John Waters knockoff film yeah. that he he really wanted to do whatever he could to not make it come across that way. And I think in the process, he kind of neutered the movie a little bit. So I think this would be a good time to bring that up, that John Waters was initially you know, uh, desired by Tab Hunter to be the director for this. And probably that was a contributing factor to getting Divine on board initially. Um, and Edith Massey was going to be in the film as well. And you can see, you know, being one of the few openly gay directors in Hollywood that, and having Tab Hunter coming right off of Polyester, that 
Paul Bartel probably didn't want to find himself typecast as a John Waters wannabe, but uh, maybe there's that's that is an really unfortunate element uh, at the core of this that kind of uh, struggle between what Tab Hunter would have wanted and what he you know he brought this project to him and what Paul Bartel was trying to fight against. It kind of felt like they were pulling maybe in two different directions. I also get that vibe reading that uh, interview with Divine, mm-hmm. even though I'm sure Divine was open for all kinds of stuff. By the way, this is an interview with Divine that took place on the set of Lust in the Dust. Yeah, but there, there was definitely a feeling that Divine saw this as like a way to get in with the rest of America, to get into, uh, you know, a more mainstream audience. Like this was going to be the vehicle. And funny enough, the vehicle would turn out to be a John Waters movie, actually. Right. But but that vibe, I wonder how many people saw this as like, yeah, we're all kind of people who've done other things or have done some strange things. But And I also wonder if the vibe for me is that the last movie we covered which the name escapes me all of a sudden. Not for publication. Not for publication, thank you. Uh, I don't think that was a huge success, right? So is there also a bit of a conservatism from Paul Bartel around the idea of like, I can't do anything crazy here because I'm trying to like have a movie that makes it and pay some bills. I don't know. I, I wonder how much there was that idea that like we're making a movie that's for a much broader audience and that leading to... Uh, a kind of holding back that I mean the, Most the movie is very movie. silly <laughs> but I do think it doesn't it does pull its punches in places it doesn't need to uh, and I, I was hoping for a little more I have to imagine it's hard to believe that they thought that this movie was like marketable in the mid 1980s right western westerns in the 1980s weren't exactly the hottest property no real stars I mean the most recognizable actor being Tab Hunter and Divine certainly at the time recognizably right but Divine had never really headlined a, a big you know a hugely successful movie and it's it is pitched to be a little more mainstream friendly right this is the kind of movie that i saw on the vhs shelves in my video store in the late 80s and it fit you know it fit right alongside everything else it wasn't like you might get you know be shocked and surprised to accidentally rent polyester or or an earlier john waters movie or even something like eating raul this one felt i mean it's hard to use the word mainstream but not for publication was designed to be mainstream and this one felt like it was trying to reach an audience that was a little bit larger one of the things that's very strange about this movie is how many reviews for it mention blazing saddles as if there's anything similar about these two movies outside of them being western comedies i mean and i think that's literally it i think that's that is the connection people were making there's nothing more to it than that which i find really silly again it's easy to close our eyes and picture something that maybe could never have been made but the idea of a a campy comedy breaking out in the midst of a filthy Sam Peckinpah style, Wild Bunch-esque uh, Western. That sounds like a hilarious, <laughs> a lot of potential there, but that's not really what you get here. I mean, you still, it definitely looks like a Western, right? It doesn't look like a cheap comedy. It, it looks like a, yeah. a movie that had a reasonable budget, but it also seems like a movie that is really interested in staying in a couple of locations and not getting too far <laughs> out of those couple of locations. I don't, do you... <sighs> I'm not trying to be dismissive of the subject of this podcast, but does Paul Bartel have a Sam Peckinpah in him at all? You know what I mean? Like, I just, this feel, this, well, I wouldn't say this fully feels like a Paul Bartel movie in comparison to some of the other things we watched. 
I don't know that I would go to Paul Bartel for a gritty western. You know what I mean? Like I that's the part that feels unrealistic to me. Sure. Not well, the, the thing the thing the the Bartel thing came about because they wanted John Waters. They couldn't get John Waters and Alan Glasser had seen eating Raul and he thought oh, this Bartell guy reminds me a lot of John Waters. He might be a good person to approach for this movie. It wasn't necessarily that they thought he could do Peckinpah. But again... I mean, Liam, not to cut you off, but is there anything that would suggest that John Waters could do Exactly. Peckinpah? That's what I was about to say. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't understand. But he like, could do really, like, mean-spirited shit. Like, I, have either of you seen Desperate Living? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. But I, I guess what it is is that then I, I just don't think well, – well, I get the, the, the grit would be there per se. I don't know that either one would be inclined to not at some point have a bit more of what this movie is in the sense of the, the campiness of it over the – actual stakes right but that was part of it too because he he didn't want it to be pure like tab hunter didn't want it to be pure peck and paul he wanted it to be peck and paul crossed with divine basically so i I guess i'll see what you're saying those two worlds merging but the key of of merging those two worlds is to at least contain some of the visual style of okay, and, sure, and, there, yeah. and there is you know the, the, i feel like the visual style here is sort of peck and paw sort of spaghetti western but i will say it's not a very attractive movie. You know, no. the way the way that, that the locations sort of define classic Hollywood westerns, but even Peckinpah westerns, it's you know, it's dirty, that's fine. It should be dirty. I like those kind of westerns. But it's also it really feels closed in, right? It feels like you're in a lot of small you know, buildings and small locations. And you know, going back to that interview with Divine that you mentioned, Liam, it's a really sweet interview. You know what I mean? Where yeah, it seems yeah. like Divine is so happy to be on a Hollywood set with real, like instead of just on location with John Waters, that that it, it feels like the next step in an evolution of a career. And I will say, and I don't know if we've made it overtly clear, I think Divine walks away with this movie. Oh yeah, so yeah, good. Divine right? is I mean, so good in this movie. I mean, I think all of the the main performances yes. are very strong. The performances carry this movie. I'm in total agreement with both of you that the performances are the best thing about the film, and the script is the weakest thing. I want to go back to something you said, though, Doug, because you earlier said something about once you get to the town, the movie kind of loses a little bit of momentum. Um, I I do like some of the town, so I don't I don't know if I would go so far as to say I'm out of it when we get to the town. But I think I hope to, not. That's like three quarters of the yeah. That's exactly. like most of the movie. <laughs> but I but I do want to point out. I think that's what you were saying about the visual of it is yeah. not true before you get to the town. It actually looked I was feeling the exact opposite of what you were saying before we got to the town. I was thinking, wow, this looks pretty good actually. Like, uh there's some cool shots here. Like, I was kind of surprised by the visual language. Then we get to the bar and there's just too much stuff happens in that dumb little bar, right? Yeah. When we leave the bar, especially I actually really like the shower scene. I know it's goofy, but I actually <laughs> liked the way it was pulled off. Yeah, and yeah. at the end, when we get to more of the climax, a lot of that's fun too. But a lot of the stuff in the bar just 
We're, we spend too much time in that one fucking dumb room. And it starts I think to feel if, like if a it, sitcom, doesn't it? You know, where it's just like a couple of locations and everyone kind of sniping at each other. You wonder why the fuck they hired Divine in the bar in the first place if the owner doesn't seem to like her at all. It doesn't, <laughs> yeah. doesn't seem to make sense that Divine is sticking around. They never really explained it. They don't have to, really. But, you know, that's just, it feels, it feels like it's the most inexpensive thing to do right. is just to spend as much time there as possible, which I understand entirely. But like every time they start to get away from that, I start to feel a little bit of a relief because it's like, yeah. well, that's mm-hmm. not that engaging. Uh, tell me more about this stupid limerick that everyone is trying yeah. to figure out. <laughs> I mean, even the well, brief. We... Oh, go ahead, Adriana. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, at least we get a couple musical numbers in the yes, bar. I agree. That's true. That is true. Le- leave the musical numbers and cut out some of the other stuff because like even the brief lynching scene, is more interesting because at least we're outside, you know, and and there's a few more extras. No, and yeah, it, and also it ties into the Western feel. Yeah, of it, right? ex- exactly. Yes. It's like it, it really feels like they have three or four big set pieces that were a little more expensive, and then they need filler. So let's go back to the bar for some schmaltzy, or you know, for, for some hamming up, hamming it up. And some of that stuff works. Like it's not all. I wouldn't get rid of it altogether. Uh, but you know, the musical numbers are fun, and you know, some of the interaction between um, uh, uh, Henry Silva and and uh, Tad Tab Hunter are, are really great. But uh, there, it's, it's sad that Henry Silva is actually really good in this, considering it's a very oh no offensive portrayal. S- side <laughs> yeah. side note, yeah, it's not about his performance. I let me be clear when I said that. <laughs> it's about this idea of like. You know, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people in this movie are being asked to do brown face. Yeah. And most of them are just going, yeah, you can tan me up, but I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. And Silva's like, no, I am fucking Bernardo. I am Bernardo. He's an eight on the Speedy Gonzalez fucking scale. I mean, (laughs) he's going, he's going for it. Well, I think it's probably like, it seems to me that my man has seen enough of these fucking old school westerns that he's relishing being bernardo he's fucking stoked to be bernardo and there in throughout western history there's been a ton of these kinds of characters that like are really memorable but uh all the brown faced westerns is one of the reasons people don't like westerns you know it's one of the things people struggle with sometimes is oh look it's another well-known white actor doing a really terrible mexican accent yeah, yeah. even if even if the roles are a little you know better written it can still be a real frustrating thing and you know silva's great it's just I I just wish that character was a, a little bit different. It's again I'm not deeply offended or anything crazy like that. It's just it was a little bit unpleasant for me. Is is all I'm saying. I mean it's hard not to at least bring up. I don't. I think we've said it at this point. I do want to mention a couple of the other performers that show up in this as well. At least since they're credited uh, anyway, and that is Cesar Romero as Father Garcia. Yep. The only problem with that role is he's such a famous actor. That he has nothing to do, like like very little to do for most of the movie. So you know he's got to show up near the end to do something significant. Yes. So that part of his like uh, little turn wasn't too surprising to me. And I got to bring up Jeffrey Lewis, an actor who I really love. And he is so good in this. He really manages to hit kind of the tonal perfection that I think Tab Hunter was really going for, which is that he's kind of a silly character, the way he keeps correcting his own grammar and things like that, but he's not a fool, right? He still he, he can still fit into the tough guy Western role at the same time. He kind of is doing that high wire act. I mean, I love him in so much stuff, but I think he's really, really great here. And um, I kind of wish we had a little more of him. Uh, I also like the idea, and I think we haven't really touched on this, but one of the great things about a lot of the characters in this how, is how kind of morally dubious they are. How Divine, even though Divine is one of the main characters and we're supposed to like that character, the Rosie Velez character, very much, 
we're also recognized that she's duplicitous and uh, kind of a piece of shit. And when the ending she kills comes, multiple people, kills multiple people uh, who are trying to provide her with oral sex. And she accidentally or maybe purposefully uh, breaks their neck. She, I mean, she kills the children <laughs> to of be the specific, court kid. Yeah. She crushes their head with her thighs. Yeah. Yes. That poor right. children of the corn kid. He just got there from the corn uh-huh. and, and he just wants to go down on a nice lady and he gets his neck broken. She messed him up so bad he ended up in the burbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as, as the you know, the the characters being kind of morally gray, I mean I think that's a staple of the Western genre. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, that's where it kind of feels more spaghetti westernish, too, right? I mean, I've already mentioned uh, the Tuco character, but I mean, Divine really is sort of enveloping that the kind of, you know, going whatever the way the wind blows, saying whatever you need to say to survive. Um, and at the end of the day, you find out that there's really only two characters that don't fit into that gray category, Tab Hunter and the Big Ed character, which I yeah. love. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's a great source of, of fun for the divine character because not just that uh, 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 she's duplicitous, right? But there's even moments where she's more duplicitous than she needs to be. Yes, like it's absolutely. Like, it's like <laughs> a, 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 a traditional character would be a little more maybe demure or effacive in their uh, uh, thuggery. And divine being divine is just like, no, I'm just going to go excessive with this. And I fucking loved it. Again, while I do want to be clear that this was not everything I wanted it to be, there's so many magical divide moments in the movie that I kind of found myself just being like, yeah, I'm having fun. It doesn't matter that I wish this was pushing it a little harder than it is or that the script is kind of ridiculous. I don't know. I, I, it still sort of was a pleasant watch for me. And I think a lot of that had to do with Divine, as well as the other actors we've mentioned, but I just have a special place for Divine. I do kind of wish that maybe rape wasn't played for comedy. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. One thing I find really interesting is that this movie, as I mentioned earlier, it has a few musical numbers, but Tab Hunter doesn't sing. And I mean, it it makes sense given the character that he plays, but I don't know, maybe if in case you guys don't, aren't aware of this, Tad, Tab Hunter had a great voice and he had a music career. He had a number, the number one song in the country at one point. Um, so I just I thought I found it interesting that he did not try to showcase his his talents as a vocalist at all. I wanted to hear when him he could have a, a tarnished tumbleweed. <laughs> Which well, he could, like that's my theme. thing yeah, though. Is no like he could, he could have, have sung that. that. He could have mm-hmm. sung the theme song of of the movie, that doesn't require his 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 character to be singing. But he didn't even do that. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can see sort of see why, right? If people recognize it, it sort of takes away. I mean, yeah, in a in a classic uh, Hollywood western like a Dean Martin style fifties western, having him sing the theme song makes a lot of sense. But the kind of character he's playing here, it it would be kind of a strange thing to have him. You know, after, after being so stoic and restrained to also, you know, be belting out the tumbleweed song in the opening credits. Not that there isn't a tradition of a singing cowboy in a lot of different movies. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder if it's just it's any time where an opportunity is given to do something that might traditionally be seen as less uh, masculine, that maybe he stayed away from it intentionally just so people wouldn't talk or people wouldn't suspect or whatever sure 
Uh, Doug, you um, before we started recording, you said that you wanted to talk about the character of Big Ed. So Big Ed, for those who haven't seen the film, is a prostitute at this bar that we spend a lot of time at. She is diminutive. Uh, she is very kind-hearted. And we find out that she's actually been helping the Ablewood character for most of the plot as we get through it. We find that out really at the end. But she obviously is, is a good-hearted person in a place where most of the people are not that whatsoever. But is also treated as being ugly, out of touch, someone that, that is kind of a joke around it. Now, originally that role was supposed to be Edith Massey, probably most familiar from uh, Pink Flamingos as the Egg Lady, but also appeared in a number of John Waters movies. And specifically, Paul Bartel did not want her to be in this movie, recognizing uh, that Edith, for anyone who is familiar with her performances, that she's not really an actress. She's more a character. And her connection with John Waters would just kind of reinforce something he was trying to get away from, which is that this is, you know, a bootleg John Waters movie and the question i had for the both of you is that whether this movie would have been better or worse if edith massey played that role man when we start with you adriana what do you think well i i mean i think it very clearly is an edith massey type character um as far as whether it would have worked if she had played the character i mean i don't i don't think edith massey fits the the tone of this movie necessarily like the like she's too much of a wild card right i mean it, yeah she's too much of a wild card and you know i think if that the the level of sort of like heightened outrageousness that tab hunter had envisioned for the film if they had maintained that i can maybe see edith massey fitting in but ultimately i think it makes sense that the role was recast for the movie that Paul Bartel was trying to make. In this movie, she doesn't fit, right? In this movie, as it exists right now, it's really hard to envision it because you need someone a little bit more together to play that role. Even even the big reveal at the end would be kind of silly, but maybe it would actually work maybe even a little bit better, depending on how unlikely it seems. The other thing, of course, is that Edith Massey died in 1984, so she might not have even, even made it through the filming. Yeah. Of this, how about you, Liam? Would you have uh, enjoyed seeing Edith Massey in that role? I don't think so. I I don't think it would have fit. I mean, it's hard. Like we've been kind of uh, projecting a movie that doesn't exist this whole time, you know. Sure. And, and I get that because I think we all wanted something a little different. So maybe there is a version of the movie that she would have fit into. But even if I picture what the movie was sort of conceived of, as opposed to what we have. That also feels like something that Edith Massey would have been a weird fit for. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm not convinced that was a great idea for a number of reasons. And I'm kind of happy with with the 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 way the Big Ed uh, character sort of works out in the end it made me happy. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think the 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 some of the treatment earlier on is kind of weird, but you know it is what it is. But uh, I don't know. I I'm also I I do have I I'm not sure what to think about the idea of her in the movie. All regardless, in that what that character would look like with her there or not, you know. So I I, I don't know. Just sticking with you for a second, Liam. Why don't you think John Waters wanted to make this movie? You know, he didn't make a movie between Polyester and Hairspray. That's seven straight years where he didn't make one. This one seems like it was served up on a platter for him. Why wouldn't he want to make it? 
I mean, a couple things I read suggested it was because it wasn't his script, but I don't yeah. know if that's true or not. I mean, that feels true, and so I'm willing to let that be true. There might have been other stuff going on, too. I mean, who knows? Maybe not interested in doing a Western, maybe was sort of over working with Tab Hunter or even wanted to let Divine do something without him. You know what I mean? Like, there, there's some feeling that Divine is trying to expand his career you know and and become you know a star and maybe there's some feeling of like part of being a real actor is working with other people and you know being involved in other projects so i don't know i i I, my guess is that the writing thing is probably the most true is that it was just like it is yeah yeah i mean it has talked he's talked about how he doesn't like he he's not interested in and doing and shooting other people's scripts um and also, I, he definitely was not over Tab Hunter. Like he loved Tab Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, one other influence on this movie that I, we haven't really talked about, and it's something I really don't know much about, but it certainly is something evoked in the title, are, are like kind of cheap romance novels and like cheap kind of of um, yeah. Yeah, and that's something you know, you kind of get a sense of it from the movie's poster, and and there are elements of you know the the lustfulness towards this main character there's a lot of sexuality here that you don't see in a lot of the westerns it's trying to emulate um but it is kind of tittering you know kind of juvenile humor in terms of how it's presented for the most part it's not you know it's it's not meant to be erotic in any way but it's sort of playing with these kind of erotic tropes that you see in cheap novels yeah and on the subject of the title and um you know the various influences on the film the title Lesson in the Dust comes from uh, the 1946 Western Duel in the Sun starring Jennifer Jones and Gregory Peck uh, because apparently on set uh, the film was jokingly referred to as Lust in the Dust. What do you think of the title? I mean, I'm a fan. I'm always a fan of like rhyming and alliteration <laughs> and stuff like sure. that. So How about you, Liam? You like the you like Lust in the Dust as a title? It's memorable at the very least. I think I do, actually. I think the first time I heard it, it was kind of like, I think because of the romance, you know, novel thing that it kind of brought up in my brain. I think, though, the first time I heard the title, it just was not, I had not seen as many divine projects. You know, I really, I knew, weirdly, I actually saw Polyester before I saw any other John Waters thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But then, you know, I knew, then I, you know, I got to know divine and john waters through hairspray and then projects after that and i think the more that i understood divine's performance style the more i thought oh lust in the dust i bet you that's going to be fun you know because of uh uh, that sort of vibe but um yeah i mean alliteration is always fun but i think there is there's something about it that speaks to that uh the idea that there is a bit of a sort of uh, 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 romance uh, thing going on here more than like a gunfighter situation. Sure. But the movie really ends up being about greed more than it is about boning, regardless of how much uh, boning scenarios might be in the in the movie. I feel uh, like there could have been more. Yeah. I mean, I really think like it, it starts off in a way where I think like, oh, okay, that's going to be the kind of uh, through line through the movie is that sex is a part of this movie. And even though there are references later, it kind of loses that 
in a way that I is fine. I mean, I'm the gold thing is fine. It very much works for a Western, but I kind of wish there was a little more sexuality in the movie than there is, which maybe for some people sounds crazy. But to me, I just thought there wasn't enough. You know, I mean, we have a lot of well, horny characters. That's for sure. It's just that they're horny in a bit way that's kind of off putting as opposed to sexual. Yeah. Right. Or it's, <laughs> or it's, it's played for laughs. Yeah. So whatever kind of sensuality there is, is kind of undercut by the goofy humor. I don't think I like the title. I, the re, I mean, I like it as a title on its own, but as something to sell to people as a Western comedy or a, you know, a, a, even a bad taste comedy that this movie doesn't go as bad taste as you might think or that as the script maybe originally was. I don't think it gets the idea across, even though, you know, it's, it is funny when you know what it's about already, but it doesn't kind of, eh, it doesn't come at you. I mean, I feel a little bit about it like I did with Not For Publication, which is just, you know, it's, 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 it's fine. It kind of relates to what you're watching when you're watching the movie. But uh, yeah, you can see why people maybe had difficulty knowing what to make of this movie when this came out. What name would you give the movie? Probably something that maybe traded on a classic Western name. <laughs> but I don't know what that would necessarily be. I mean, this is something that I always, Liam and I have, have talked about this in some of our other podcasts, people making... Now, this isn't a spoof, but it, it, it is a comedy that's set in a certain genre, and whether the people making it are necessarily fans of that genre. That isn't to say that Paul Bartel didn't love Hollywood westerns or didn't have um, you know ambitions to make a great Hollywood western, but when you watch this movie, I don't get the impression that this is uh, something that is really... Uh, made by someone who's obsessed with westerns. I think he's a lot more interested in the character stuff than he is with the western aspects. Do you guys have any, uh, is there is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? Maybe just the, I just wanted to, before we finish up, maybe we'll just talk about the ending briefly. Uh, it is, I, I really oh, like, like the, the twist. I, I mean, the twist, like I said before, it wasn't a huge surprise. There's actually a, a few twists that all happen at once. Of course, all of the main characters end up uh, at the gold that everyone has been searching for, the MacGuffin of the entire movie. And, you know, all that duplicitousness and people turning on each other, I love all that stuff. That stuff is great because it really does feel like something you'd see on a Western without, like, with just a slight comedic bent. I mean, there were a yeah, lot of... Yeah, and I feel like know, that that element is the most Bartellian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People being shitty to each other. That's right. <laughs> but also just people just generally, you know, a couple of characters who are human in this world of people who just are out for themselves entirely and, you know, in some way connecting and helping each other. I, I really like that. There is, I think, a spark of positivity in a lot of the movies that we've watched from Paul Bartel, even if they tend to be very cynical at their core, there's still a kind of a belief in humans on a base level, or at least very specific humans uh, that I really like. And that still comes through here. I, it almost feels like it's just like, I wouldn't have minded, you know, Abel would move on to a different town and maybe meet up with the divine character again and have another adventure, that sort of thing, right? That this is just the start of a series of, of movies with those two running into each other, just like you kind of would feel um, in, the, uh, in, in the Man With No Name trilogy, right? Even though those characters are not the same from movie to movie. But thematically, you could see that there's so much potential here. I just don't feel like it always lives up to that potential. No, I totally agree. William, do you have any thoughts on the... Uh... The ending of the movie? I, as I said, I love the Big Ed thing because they're hinting at it the whole movie. And I thought, 
if this doesn't go anywhere, I'm going to be real bummed. And it went exactly where I wanted it to, which, you know, it might hit people as kind of cornball, but I liked that aspect of it. Um, otherwise, the ending, you know, the, the the reveal of the Padre was just kind of like, as, as Doug said, that's, you know, that's what it is. Maybe you don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but you know there's something going on having you know, such a big actor in that role. Uh, honestly, more of the, maybe I should have seen this coming, but when, uh, the, that they're sisters and they have matching butt tattoos, I did not actually see that coming. That as, and th- that's not quite the ending. That's a little before the ending, but that big reveal for me, I was like, Oh, okay. All right. I like that. You know, that, there's that a lot of that, that, that makes no fucking sense. If you think yeah. about it for even two seconds, the- they had tattoos on them when they were children and the yeah. fucking map still works when they're all Amazing. grown up. The fact that one of them just stays in the one place with the thought that, Oh, eventually the other half will show up. Why? One little town in the middle of the entire country makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> the sisters thing was like part of tab hunters initial idea. Like the, mm-hmm. the concept that he initially came up with, came up with was you know rival sisters searching for a buried treasure i just can't i with stuff like that doug i know you're right but part of me is like i don't fucking care like no part of that (laughs) it's if i was in the room and someone said yeah and they got the butts on their they got the tattoos on their butts and they match i go oh that's cool you know like i I don't give a no part of this movie made me go I really need this to make sense. I just needed it to be entertaining, and I thought it was. On that note, before we finish, I have to admit something embarrassing. I don't fully understand the limerick and how it ties into, like, the the two buttes, the one in Scotland and the one in the United States. I don't really understand how they found the gold from that. You don't have to understand. Oh, sorry. I thought one of you were going to explain it to me. (laughs) I refuse. It just the limerick is so stupid, uh, and I don't use that word very often, but it is. And I just wish it was just maybe it, the limerick. I think is an example is is representative of my general issue with this movie as a whole. I just wish it was a little more clever. That's all. Yeah, which again is a script issue. So yeah. Oh no, definitely. And and you know, th- I think they do a lot with something that really needed a lot of work but what it feels like everything that's great about this movie is something that someone else brought to it we also should mention i think it's paul bartell doing the opening narration right yes yes yeah which i don't think he's credited for that whatsoever even on imdb even uh listed even in the trivia it doesn't mention that he does the voiceover but glad we still get a little touch of paul bartell in this movie since he doesn't show up proper or at least i never saw him in the in the background anywhere i just uh I think I'm more with the script. I'm more bummed on that it the movie isn't a little bit funnier than it is, than that parts of it don't make any sense. I think <laughs> if I found it more of a really overwhelmingly funny comedy, then I would take every flaw of logic they could throw at me and think I was okay with it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I generally agree. It's just that you would think that the one thing that everyone is obsessing about and trying to understand, that when they finally understand it, that I would understand it too. The fact that I don't <laughs> is just, it makes me feel like, I'm like, oh, they get it. Let me think about it. Why couldn't the butt maps just be enough? Why is, what the fuck do you need the limerick for? <laughs> yeah, it's a little... Um... It's a hat on a hat, right? Right. Okay, well, I think that just about concludes this episode of Bar Tell Me Something Good. On our next episode, 
We'll be talking about the horse betting comedy, The Long Shot, starring Tim Conway and produced by the great Mike Nichols. That's the only great thing about that movie. I've never seen it. I know it's written by Tim Conway. I know Harvey Corman is in there. So you have that DNA of the classic Carol Burnett show. But I will say this little piece of trivia that suggests that the opening title has a rap between Tim Conway and Ice-T. That makes me curious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Tim Conway rapping with Uh, Ice-T. Will wonders never cease? Well, I guess we'll find out. Doug. Where can our listeners find you on the internet? (laughs) Well, it's getting more and more difficult these days. Uh, You used to be able to find me on Twitter, but no longer since I've been kicked off for all time. But you can now find me on Blue Sky. Just look for my name, Doug Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. I'm also on Threads, but let's wait to see if that ends up surviving, just like uh, whatever competitor ends up winning this war of microblogging in the near future. You can also, of course, find the Cinema Smorgasbord podcast over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. And all the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord, all of our themed podcasts, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Eric. Roberts, George Kennedy, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, and of course, Paul Bartel. Uh, you can find uh, that, the latest episodes over at cinepunks.com. Liam, where can the nice folks listening to our podcast find you on the internet? Unlike Doug, I'm still on Twitter, at Liam Rules. I'll be honest, though, uh, I haven't been on there in a while. I just I don't think it's worth my time. I am. I never say this. One. Also, Liam, I hate to I hate to stop you. I should have corrected myself. It's not called Twitter anymore. It's called I, X. I was going to I was going to make a joke about that. But then I thought by the time this episode comes out, people will probably forget that because who knows if it'll even be around by then. Right. So. No, 100 percent. Look, look, look. Just go to cinepunks.com. That's all I care about. C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. Uh, X.com slash Cinepunks. I hate you so much. Uh, <laughs> you can also go where Cinepunks, you can search for Cinepunks on Instagram and on Facebook if those are things you're into. I'm on Blue Sky as well, but come on. I don't know yet. Who knows that that's going to be a thing? I don't fucking know. I guess you could find me on Instagram, but that's not worth your time. It's just pictures of my daughter. You don't want that. Uh, but yeah, go to Cinepunks.com and, and check out everything there. Well, Adriana, do you want to say where people can find you? Oh, I mean... I don't really use Twitter or any like I'm good. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You can find me on Twitter at EADXBB. I'm also on the Cinepunks Discord. You can hit oh, hit us hit us up on the interweb to get a Discord link. Uh goodbye everybody. Bye. <laughs> In the hot desert sun, a man's heart grows cold. Sand-filled winds rust his soul. Till his heart, like a rock, with nowhere to roll. But aimlessly on and on. When life's been nothing but a dirty deal The dirtier it gets, the better he feels Then he's gone too far 